you want your kids to work hard, tell them I'm not getting a dime when you die. <laughs> not a dime. Tell them you're donating all your money to the Humane Society yeah. when you die. See how hard they start working. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Ryan Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Stephen McCoy is an Ojibwe from Garden River First Nation who grew up in Bawating, another name for Sault Ste. Marie where he currently resides as a homeowner and provider to post-secondary students. Mr. McCoy is a well-educated, award-winning entrepreneur who founded Gen City and Indigen Biz. Stephen is very active in his community as a philanthropist who overcame a lot of adversity in life, such as abandonment, abuse, racism, poverty, and a life-threatening accident, to ultimately achieve success and find fulfillment. Stephen is an accomplished public speaker and mentor who enjoys sharing his knowledge and life story especially with young Indigenous students, in hopes of inspiring others to overcome adversities and pursue opportunities in entrepreneurship and business. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to have you on the show today, especially when I had that pre-show discussion with you and I had a little bit of an opportunity to sort of get to know you and your story. You came highly recommended by a friend of mine, Rory Ring, from the Chamber of Commerce. He wrote this email introducing us and he was saying, you know what, you got to meet my friend Stephen. There's just so much benefit that could come from having his story shared with the world. I imagine this is something you've done quite a bit throughout your career, but it's an honor to have that story told once more on the Sue podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. And it's funny, I've been a public speaker for quite a while in my life, but actually digging into my story is something new into my repertoire of presentation and public speaking. I guess it's something I've realized that can help and benefit other people by showing them the path and the things I've gone through to overcome to get to where I am now. So amazing. So tell the world, who is Stephen McCoy? Well, as you said, I'm an Ojibwe native, member of Garden River First Nation, but I grew up here in Sault Ste. Marie, Boating, as the Ojibwe name is. They're actually looking at changing the name, possibly, that's just talks, but they're looking at changing the name back to the original name here of Sault Ste. Marie, back to the Ojibwe name of Boating. I grew up here, and my mom moved us off the reserve when I was just a baby. And we moved into Sioux onto social housing. That was the start journey. Now, my mom, she grew up with a lot of her own demons, so she wasn't around a lot. I kind of raised myself. I never met or know who my real father is. I had a stepdad that was around in the picture, but again, he was kind of absent from the picture at the same time. And so that was kind of how I grew up. Somewhere I just, along the way, I was looking at it and I was didn't want to be in the cycle I wanted to be anymore. I realized where my family was at when it came to things like poverty, alcoholism, that type of thing. A lot of trauma was there. And I was trying to figure out ways to get over that. So early on at a young age, I was like, looked around and I said, I wanted to be a businessman. And I didn't know what that meant. Just seeing other people in that type of field that had money and had a good life. And that's kind of where I wanted to go to. And I've seen that education was the pathway for me. So I kind of just stuck into school. But along the way, things got tougher and tougher. I overcame a lot. And now as an adult, I look back at what I've done. I have a bachelor's degree in university now, and I'm a business student. So my bachelor's degree is in administration with a specialization in marketing. 
an entrepreneur, as I said, I found Gen City Consulting or Gen City Inc. Now I've incorporated and my business focuses on communications, marketing. I started out helping small entrepreneurs and now I've moved on to helping larger organizations, communities, and I still like to help smaller entrepreneurs in more indirect ways, uh, but I, I don't really work directly with them anymore, but that's how I did start out with my business. But I'm a homeowner now. And I do provide affordable housing for post-secondary students as well. And I'm a philanthropist with my community. I give back a lot in governance board. So I currently sit on the chamber with Rory Rain. I'm a director now with the board and the chamber. And I'm also a board member with the Anishinaabe Business Professionals Association. And I was a board member for nine years with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Sault Ste. Marie. I was a board member with Strive Young Professionals Group for a year. I was a board member with the Sault Ste. Marie Economic Development Corporation for three years. I've helped with fundraising events, created some events that raised tens of thousands of dollars for local charities here. I try to keep education going. And now at this stage in life, I'm looking at to give back more, sharing my stories, being a mentor as well. So I do volunteer my time to be a mentor to young Indigenous students through the Rivers to Success program offered through Inspire. It's a national program. I'm also a mentor through the Futurepreneur program, another national program that helps small entrepreneurs out. So that's me kind of in a nutshell. It sounds like you really care a lot about the community. Well, I try to give back as much as I can. I grew up, like I said, in a lot of disadvantaged ways, and I had to take advantage of a lot of different social programs in my community growing up. So now that I'm in a position to give back, it's just natural thing for me to feel fulfilled something to be a part of the community as well. Could you tell our audience more about the struggles that you overcame? You obviously sound very, very accomplished in your career, not just accumulating various educational credentials and what have you, but also giving back to the community, being involved in boards and that kind of thing. But I think what I personally find very fascinating is not the sort of destinations as it were like going from point a to point b of like now here i've built this business and i've helped all these clients and i've acted with the community at this level that's sort of like okay that's where we are today but what fascinates me personally is like tell me more about the journey like peel back the layers of the onion of what it was like starting from where you started from and then getting to that it doesn't sound like you grew up in privilege mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like life was handed to you on a silver spoon or from and, and those are the most exciting stories to me mm-hmm. you know because they are stories of strength and discipline and vision and goal setting which are things that a lot of people have but in fact let's be real i would say most people would struggle with a lot my struggle started early i grew up In an environment where my mom wasn't around a lot, she had a lot of demons of her own, so she was out battling alcoholism, gambling. So I remember being in kindergarten, and one of the biggest things that I remember from kindergarten is memorizing phone numbers to bars, because I came home so many times to an empty apartment, and I knew nobody was home. Nobody was there to watch me, and I knew where to find my mom or my stepdad. They were at the bars. So I looked through the phone book so many times using the old school rotary phones back in the day. Uh, if you guys remember them where you had a big circle, yep. a big bell on them, and them. one number at a time, you mess up the number at the end, you got to start over again. I dialed those numbers so many times, I still remember a number to this day, one of those phone numbers you had to call so many times. That was the biggest thing I remember from kindergarten. And how old were you at that time? 
Well, at that time, I was like five, five, six years old at wow. kindergarten. Five-year-old having to memorize numbers of local bars and stuff, trying to find right. you know, a parent who's supposed to be at home. Yeah, and my big wonder was when someone going to be home to feed me. Right. We had a gas stove in the apartment at the time, and I knew I couldn't instinctively just live off cereal. I was like, when someone going to be home? Is today the day I learn how to use a gas stove right, to feed myself? So those were the kind of things that I grew up with from kindergarten. So I basically had to, sure, I had a roof over my head. We had food in the fridge most of the times. You know, I never really remember being starving or anything like that or being on the streets. But I was abandoned. I was basically left to my own doing, my own upbringing. So that was something that right off the start, I wasn't able to enjoy a, a normal childhood, obviously. And because of that, I was secluded from having friends. Uh, I wasn't allowed to bring people over and I wasn't allowed to go out a lot because you know, we couldn't show people what was happening in the household, right? There's abuse going on, things like that, alcoholism, abandonment. So can't let other people know what was going on, right? There's a stigma, you know, it's uh, like keeping everything secret. There's a stigma and there's other things to it as well. Um, but yeah, that was my upbringing. So school to me was the time where I could escape from that, that home life that seemed so empty to me. Schooling was a place where I could actually go express myself, be creative, felt, you know, part of a group or part of a community that I didn't get when I was at home. And then on top of that, because we lived off reserve, so we lived in the city the whole time, me being a visibly brown native person, so I got teased a lot from white kids, you know, for being a brown kid. I remember racism was, it wasn't that blatant, but it was there as well. And then as from being, living in town from my own people who lived on reserve, I was shunned by my own people because I wasn't on reserve. I wow. lived off reserve. So you kind of don't feel like you belong anywhere. And this is where a lot of our people fall into these type of cycles or these type of situations. So if you look at the stats for the population of native people in Canada, about 50% of them live off reserve. They live in a city center somewhere or a small town or whatnot, but they don't live all on reserve. And a lot of them face these same kind of environments that I did. They're not from the reserve. They get shunned by their own community sometimes. And because they're from the reserve, they get shunned by the non-Indigenous community. And so this is where it's very easy to fall into things like alcoholism, drug use, right? When you see that as well as a pattern in your life. Now, that's something I didn't want to have to fall into. I knew education for me was something would be a good way to get out of this cycle of poverty, this cycle of alcoholism that was affecting my family. And I knew that at an early age and identified that. So that's what I stuck to. And well, I tried to anyway, as much as I could. Growing up through elementary school, that was my goal. Like I said, I was always business mindset somehow, some way. I remember being in elementary school. We used to have career days, have those days where you dress up what you want to be when you grow up, right? And I did the cliche things I remember, like firemen, policemen. But the one time that stuck out to me the most was when my mom took me to the Salvation Thrift Shop, got a suit, and I dressed up as a businessman for <laughs> career day. And I was like, that was a really great moment for me, one of the best career days growing up. So it was those things that I knew I was going to end up somewhere along in business, but I didn't know exactly what that looked like. I remember one of my classmates at the time saying to me, what are you? I was like, well, I'm a businessman. 
They're like, well, what do you do? My dad goes to work every day in a suit. I was like, well, good for you. That's what I want to do too. And that's what I would like to have. So it was those type of things. But as you get a little bit older, I started to butt heads more, particularly with my mom. I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And it was a, a, it was starting to become a very turbulent home life for me. So when I got to high school, I was looking to obviously try and make more friends that I didn't get that chance to do in elementary school. End up falling in with not particularly the best crowd and started clashing heads more at home. So it was harder to focus in school. Started skipping classes a lot, not showing up. That's when the alcohol and drug abuse started as well. So I ended up getting close. I ended up moving out of my house or my home a couple times through high school. And near the end of high school, I, I was like, I don't know, four or five credits shy. And I ended up just dropping out completely from high school and just going to work because I was living in an apartment and trying to pay bills and was working as a cleaner. And so that's what I ended up doing. And just, I was like, if I want to go back to college, at least I knew that I had that card in my back pocket. As an Indigenous person, if I want to go to college, I know that's at least paid for. But a couple of the things that I tried to apply for at the time, I wasn't approved because my marks weren't good enough in high school, right? But I knew if I could go back and apply as a mature student, I also had that option. So I was like, I'm just going to focus on trying to work, get established. At that point, I dropped out of school. So at this point in my life, I actually have a university bachelor's degree. I have a college diploma. I have a college certificate, but I don't have a high school diploma. (laughs) So there's an irony to that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny how that worked out. You know, as you were telling me the, that sharing those very personal stories about what it was like dealing with other kids at school when you were at a very young and vulnerable age, it reminded me of when I was growing up in Bedford, Nova Scotia during my childhood. Now it's not an identical situation because I'm not Aboriginal, but it was a similar sort of unsafe environment, I will say, on the playground, where I am one of a very, very, very small handful of children in the school who is a person of color who's not Caucasian. And that made me a target, unfortunately. There were many children there who were just so casual with their cruelty. And you you can look back on it as a fully grown adult and you can try to make sense of it. You can be like, well, maybe these were behavior patterns that they were learning from their parents. You know, maybe there's this learned hatred of other communities and what you don't see as your own or what have you, whatever the reasons are. When you're that age, a child doesn't understand why or what is going on. They just know that, well, the other kids are being mean to me, right? And that that can have a domino effect in your life. You carry that year over year over year forward into your life. And what type of effect does that have on a person? How does that influence their conception of self and their opinion about the world around them? And then subsequently the choices that they want to make. I can see how that would drive people to escape, escape into alcohol use, escape into dysregulated emotions that can feel really good, flying off the handle and that kind of thing. 
But I do find it fascinating that somewhere along the way, you made the conscious choice. You made the decision that you wanted something more from your life. Rather than see yourself as powerless in a cruel world, you saw the, the potential that was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's an important message. There's a lot of different paths I could have went down, and a lot of them weren't that promising. But I did want more, and I knew there was better things out there. And that's what I wanted to try and strive towards the yeah. most. One of the things in your bio that stood out to me was that you, you work a lot with um, the younger generation today to sort of inspire and guide them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that work? A lot of this work comes from a place where what did I not have growing up? And I didn't have any mentors, people to guide me along, to help me out. So I've had to struggle through a lot of what I'm doing. What I'm doing, I am the first person in my family to do a lot of it. I am the first person to graduate from college, first person to graduate from university, one of the first to be an actual homeowner off reserve, which is different than on reserve if you know there's a big difference between homeownership on reserve and off reserve. I don't know the difference. So yeah, we can talk about that as well, but I own my own home. So I'm one of the first people in my family to own my own home. And I'm also the first person in my family to provide housing to other people as a landlord now. I am the first person to start a business and to be able to succeed and fulfill full-time now off my own business. And I hire contractors. I don't have any full-time staff yet, but I'm looking to expand. And when I do that, again, I'm going to be the first person to be doing all this. So as you can imagine, I didn't have a lot of guidance. I made a lot of mistakes along the way be simple mistakes so that's kind of what drives me to want to share my story and share my knowledge with the younger generation especially younger indigenous youth to show them that there's a different path out there because when you hear a lot of new stories when it comes to indigenous people a lot of it's negative a lot of it is we're either murdered we're missing or we're protesting stuff and that's not who we all are a lot of us are doing a lot of different things out there that you don't hear about so That's kind of why I want to be able to share my story because, one, sure, I've gone through some traumatic stuff, but other people, especially Indigenous people and youth, are going to be able to see that and see themselves, hopefully, in some of my struggles. Right. And two, I want to be an example to say, hey, despite these struggles, through persistence, grit, and effort, I was able to overcome those adversities and be able to succeed. In life. Now, I'm not, no, I'm not a saint. I don't have all the answers. I still make mistakes to this day. But part of giving back, that's what gives me fulfillment through life, is being able to share, share my knowledge and help share those stories in hopes of inspiring others as well. Again, it comes back to trying to be the person for myself that I didn't have growing up. It's a powerful message. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what drives a lot of people who gone through trauma whatever the trauma is growing up if you see a lot of people who are driven now and what they're doing once you've gone through trauma you can start to realize other people are doing things based out of their trauma trying to overcome it and it's a very powerful motivator in a lot of ways it's a bittersweet motivator it's like an unfortunate people have to go through some of these struggles to be motivated to do these things but here we are you mentioned you made some mistakes along the way Mm. What sort of mistakes were they? Not hiring the proper professionals would be a mistake that I'm looking at now. 
trying to save a dime, trying to do it all myself is a mistake that I've still learning on how to ask for help and reach out and lean on professionals more. So that's one of the biggest mistakes. And if I can help anybody, the biggest thing I'd be like is don't try and do everything on your own. There's resources, there's professionals out there. If it sounds a little pricey for a professional, like a lawyer or an accountant, do a market analysis, get a couple other quotes, and you'll see that's pretty much the going rate. And sometimes it's worth extra buck to put out. I know as coming from a poor background and doing everything myself, that you're always trying to save a dollar sometimes. But doing that can cost you even more money down the road instead of what you would have paid up front for that professional help. So a lawyer help. I put in through a trademark specifically, and I didn't put the trademark in properly. So now that's affecting my ability to enforce that trademark. Oh, wow. You know, because I didn't cough up the money to get a trademark lawyer to help me with the application through the innovation and science arm of Canada. So that's just one of the little mistakes that I've made along the way. Being a homeowner and a home provider, as a landlord, I've had the wrong people as my tenants because I didn't know how to properly vet them. And I've learned the hard way how to not get the proper tenant into my apartment. So I've had to refocus that and search and be a better judgment of character. I've had to learn the hard way. Again, looking at things like financing expenses through different financial tools like a credit card instead of getting, say, a bank loan or tapping into other resources like a CDC bank or a BDC bank. BDC, yeah. BDC that's specifically for business owners to get a lower interest rate. You might finance it off something else because you don't know those options are there or better options exist. So those are a couple of the mistakes that I've made. You know, it feels like in business, that's the best way to learn. Because I know sometimes, <laughs> sometimes if you can afford to <laughs> the you, lesson, financially afford the lesson. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I first started my company, it was just so overwhelming for me in certain ways. And I definitely made a lot of mistakes along the way. A lot of very financially costly mistakes, but that's part of the journey, right? And you hope that you look back after 10 or so years of entrepreneurship and you can look at yourself and say, you know what? I know how this system works. I know how to balance my books, how to plan for taxes, how to write off business expenses with my corporate credit card. I, like I can play this game that we're in. I mean, for lack of a better, I don't know if I want to just call it just a game, but like, I mean, sometimes when you're trying to succeed in this capitalistic society as a small business owner, it almost feels like you're playing a game of Monopoly mm. and you make your mistakes on the path to understanding the rules. I think that's how it differs from an actual game of Monopoly. When you sit down with a board game, you can open it up and read the manual and you understand how it works. Whereas nobody ever sits you down and explains that stuff to you. They certainly don't teach it in schools. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to sit down and tell you how the game of business or the game of life is going to work unless you go to some really expensive business school or whatever. And arguably even those places don't teach you enough real world stuff. Mm. So it almost feels like the only way, their only reliable way is to just get out there and do it. And you know what, if it costs you some money or if it sets you back, the knowledge that you get from that and the ability that you have to then create the next business and the next one until something you get it right. 
Mm-hmm. And then you could look back and you're like, whoa, like I've got all these customers and I've got this great team of employees and I've got this amazing office. Like I did it. I built what I set out to build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Being an entrepreneur and being in business, there is a level of risk that you have to be able to take on. And if you're very risk adverse, entrepreneurship just may not be your field. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the first things that when I was working with small entrepreneurs and working with young students and they talk about wanting to do entrepreneurship, the first thing I talked to them about was like, do you understand what's all involved with that? Are you ready to put in 10 hours a day, sometimes 12 hours a day without the possibility of getting paid? Are you willing to fail, possibly going bankrupt and restart? Are you willing to give up your time and effort? Are you willing to sacrifice time with your family? For this, there's a lot of things that go into a business that people don't sometimes think about beforehand. So, oh yeah, try and lay it out very clearly. There is a lot of things that you do have to give up, and there's amount of risk that comes with it. The basic stats are what thirty percent of businesses fail within the first few years. I imagine it's probably it's, more it's, than I think that. It's much higher than that, yeah. but it's a high failure rate. Yeah, and it all depends on what you go into. And so that's something I was aware of as well coming into this, and. Knowing that I don't have a lot of support systems behind me, that's how I end up getting into this path of consulting and communications and marketing because it's a very low entry, uh, cost to entry, very low barriers to enter in. Just need a phone, computer, internet access, basically, and you you can be off being a consultant in anything. Well, and and a lot of technical skills, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's these lines of work where it seems so straightforward when you're just looking at that person running their company. They've got a coffee table and a laptop and that's really it. And as you said, a cell phone, but what they're doing on that machine is complex. It's Mm -hmm. like you have to know how to use that particular software that is relevant to your industry. You have to be able to not just use it, but apply it and help your clients in a way where they just don't have the time or the skills to do those things. Whether it's something like, I don't know, video editing or it's in websites or it's designing web applications. These things take time and take skill. Now, granted, we now live in a world where you can learn almost anything online for free. And if it's not for free, there are courses out there. You can pay whatever, but you can acquire those skills. And if you're the kind of person who can learn and be self-taught, I think that's a skill that more people should have, the ability to consume knowledge and give themselves skills from resources that are online without necessarily having to go have it explained to them by someone like a professor or a mentor or whatever. Again, like having people to look up to is great. Mm. Getting an apprenticeship is great. Get stuff like that is good. But we live in this world now where it's like, if you can't consume knowledge online and learn and develop skills through online courses, you're at a severe disadvantage when you're competing against other people who can do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. I totally agree. Those technical skills, that's something I've seen happening when I was younger. And I was like, I at least need to know how to use a computer and get typing skills and some sort of software skills. And one of my jobs was working in tech support through my 20s, working in inbound tech support for internet and computers. So I learned a lot about software and hardware side there as well, which I was able to take and apply to what I'm doing today, which is great. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of support or a lot of money or any safety nets. So I had to find something that was low cost barrier to entry, something that was unique to my skills. And so far it's been paying off pretty handsomely for me. Steve, some of the most interesting stories I hear from 
small business owners is when they recall a time where they had a particular client come to them and they have this problem that they're trying to solve, right? They're just like, hey, you know, I heard you're really good at X, Y, Z thing, whatever. From the client's perspective, the problem just seems so intractable. It seems like this is what I'm trying to do and I'm just, I need to find the right person to help me with this. And you're like, you know what? That is exactly what I do. Yes, I can help you with that. And I know from my journey in entrepreneurship, that's been some of the most satisfying client consultations that I've had where I'm sitting with a client and they're viewing their problem as insurmountable. And I'm sitting here with the skill set that I have. And in my case, in the practice of law, but this is sort of universal for anyone in a service-based business where you're like, you know what? I got you covered. Mm-hmm. I could probably tell some stories like that, but I'm more interested in yours. So as I describe that, do you have stories that come to mind that are consistent sort of with that feeling? One recent one I can think of is with last year. So I had a colleague of mine, she approached me from Sioux College and they're engaging in this new program that they got approved for where Indigenous students from Sioux College were being paired with Indigenous students from Mexico, a university in Mexico, UPI. And they were going to be paired up to spend two weeks in Mexico and to help small Indigenous entrepreneurs around the Yucatan Peninsula. And so they were Indigenous students, and it was kind of a business-based program. But because of their Indigenous students, not all of them, if any of them, I don't think, were actually in business. So what they wanted and needed was an Indigenous business mentor to give a crash course to the students on basic business concepts and startup concepts so they could be at least going in there armed kind of as consultants basically they were going in to work with different businesses on different goals so they hired me to come in and so from there I had to design three workshops two hours long each workshop before we went down so a six hour basically crash course on marketing and business basics business startups things they should know going in there if they're going to be helping a small business And then I went down there for the two weeks and spent time with them. We did debriefings in class for the two weeks leading up where they had to give a presentation at the end. And during that time, I watched the students, their goals and their outlines were pretty, to me when I was looking at it, I was like, those should be pretty easy metrics for the students to capture in the two weeks that were here for their project. Within the first week, most of them had gone way beyond those metrics. Wow. So it was a really nice feeling to watch the students and take the knowledge that I have to pass it along and to give those workshops. And we did all the workshops in Zoom. So sometimes you're not sure if the students are actually listening to you because their cameras aren't on and you just see names and black screens and you just think maybe I'm just presenting this to an empty Zoom room. Who knows? You don't really know. And students can be sometimes quiet and they don't pipe up a lot. But when you get into the actual field and you see that they're taking the knowledge that you've taught in those courses and in those uh, workshops and they're asking you engaging questions and you're able to give them actual usable knowledge that they can take in their project and apply and go help an actual business as part of their program. It was a really rewarding experience for me to say, hey, I'm starting to make myself, I'm recognized now as a niche market, my niche branding as an indigenous business person. You said it was three two-hour workshops for a total of six hours of content. What were some of the lessons that you were teaching through those workshops? I was teaching basic branding, why branding is important, the basic marketing concepts, so how to market that brand, platforms to use the marketing through, 
looking at cost analysis, analysis, pricing, and then giving them some basic tools and trying to keep it engaging as well. Remember one part, I said, these are some very interesting business movies that I enjoy that really give you a, a taste of business that even you don't really learn in business school. Like you said before, participating in business and getting out there and maybe taking those lumps sometimes is sometimes the best way to learn sometimes when it's in business. So, so here's some stories, here's some books, here's some movies. Uh, if you want to engage in those to kind of get a world, like a story view feel of what business can be like. So it was very nice to be able to share and impart that knowledge. Those are my specialties as well when it comes to marketing, communications, branding, business startups. So I just basically gave them a roundabout packaging way of like, these are some business basics you should know yeah. if you're going to go in and help these small businesses, entrepreneurs, right? Oh, so much goes into branding. It's mm-hmm. incredible. I first developed an interest in that when Apple was becoming really popular. And I know it's a super cliche thing to say, like they were pretty much the leader in redefining what it was to be a really effective marketing campaign. Everyone tried to start copying them when they came on the scene. But I believe it was a commencement speech that Steve Jobs gave many years before he died about his fascination with things like font and calligraphy, mm-hmm. where he, he had gone to university and in a very short amount of time realized that, you know, what I'm studying here uh, or what I'm majoring in isn't going to get me to my goals and my dreams. I'm going to just like randomly walk into some classes that I find interesting, that I find fascinating. So he walked into a calligraphy class and he saw how different styles of writing and fonts and that kind of thing could convey different emotions and different feelings. And then when you look at that today and you look at your favorite brands, even like the textile that they use for their logo, it's like you'll see a very different font for like a technology company versus the font that's being used for like I don't know, like a restaurant or an automotive company or whatever, right? Like mm-hmm. all these really, really, really fine details goes into your brand image. When we were designing, you know, I designed the logo along with my business partner for a law firm that I used to own. And we figured, okay, lawyers are seen to be very formal and very like uptight stuff. And we have to design our logo that conveys a lot of formality and a lot of professionalism. So we had a very traditional sort of like, times Roman kind of font, but like you look at the logo and you instantly think, okay, boring old lawyers, (laughs) you know, wasn't meant to be like this like fun, modern, crisp, cool sort of brand identity. And that's just your logo and that's just your font. There's so much more. I imagine this is probably something you've encountered a lot in your line of work where people were when designing their brand identity, they're interested in like, okay, what sort of like color scheme should we use? Mm -hmm. Right. You, You come to this website for a steakhouse and you expect if it's like an upscale dining experience you expect a lot of like neutral colors you you don't expect a bunch of random like pink and green and whatever all over the Mm -hmm. place right like so you know i like to think about these things because i've always found it very exciting to get really into the nitty-gritty of the creative side of these things and it just applies to every business and literally any business whatever your product or your service is you have to pay close attention to these things like colors and fonts and that kind of thing. Yeah. And you have to be in front and foremost on people's mind as yeah. well. McDonald's, they know, you know where they are, yeah. but they still spend millions of dollars a year on advertising. Yeah. But there's a reason for that. 
they understand the power of marketing and branding and advertising and, and being foremost in people's minds. So branding is super important. And that's part of what I was teaching them in the, in the course. And back to your original question, for me, once I start getting personal calls for these things, that's when I know I'm doing a good job of branding myself. Right. And because most of my business doesn't come from online searches or things like that. My business now comes from referrals from other people. Like Rory said to you, like, this is a good friend of mine. You should, he would be really good for the podcast. The reason why Rory knows that is because he's a friend of mine as well. And I'm telling him I want to share my story more. So I need more ways to get my story out there, more platforms. And if I didn't say anything, if I didn't tell him that he wouldn't have passed that along. Right. So that was another thing I remember teaching students and that I, I do teach and mentor to students as well now, or just other entrepreneurs is networking. Networking is big. It's opened so many doors for me and brought me to, to many opportunities. Many of the clients I have came through different networking opportunities, places that I didn't think I would get a client from or that you might not really think traditionally. Most people think, oh, you go to a Take 5 event like you were talking about or a local community chamber event to meet people. Sometimes just showing up at a banquet and then introducing yourself to somebody at the table and being in a more casual environment is what gets you called the next day. You exchange a business card somewhere along the way and you get an email or a phone call saying, hey, you talked about this the other night. Can you help us out? Sure, let's talk some more. Talk business this time. But it all comes from networking. And COVID, you know, it really put a damper on people getting together and but that's changing now in the past year. I've been to a lot more conferences in person now in the past six months to a year. So it's nice to get back in person with people again. It's an element that you cannot replace, no matter how hard we try. Yeah. I know when I was a lot younger, when I was an undergrad, I felt really intimidated by the idea of like business networking, whatever you want to define that as. Mm-hmm. And I think it just sort of came with age and that kind of thing. Maybe a lot of people, when they're younger, they're still sort of like developing their sense of self and self-esteem and confidence and what do I bring to the table as a professional and stuff like that. And now, as the years have passed, it's just one of the most enjoyable experiences for me. Yeah, you're quite right. I was at the Take 5 event through the chamber just a few days ago, and I just met such interesting people and they took an interest in me as well. They want to know like, what do you guys talk about on the podcast? And some of them also wanted to know a little bit about like my past life and down South in the GTA and stuff like it's just, you're meeting really, really ambitious people who care about their careers, who care about accomplishing goals and they want to see everyone succeed. You know, you join a chamber because you have a vision for yourself and your future as an entrepreneur and you can meet other people who have a similar vision for themselves and you can sort of like work towards your shared goals together and you can watch the business community flourish in the Sioux and also provide for the local community. When you have a strong network of small business owners who all sort of talk to each other and know each other, they can come up with good ideas about meeting the needs of the community. Maybe not everyone wakes up one morning and ever feels the desire to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner. Some people, it's just not what drives them, and that's totally okay. But you hope that there are enough people in the community that do feel that drive to provide 
goods and services to the community mm-hmm. uh, for a fair price. And if you're so lucky that you become very, very, very successful, then you can also start dedicating yourself to sort of more charitable causes as well. And Rory was actually talking about that on his episode. Small entrepreneurs and small businesses, they make up a huge part of the local fabric when it comes to the makeup of your commerce and just the feel of say like your downtown feel or your tourism attraction feel. What do people like to go to and what kind of service are they getting and products can they get in your city? So a lot of that comes from small business. Like I'm not going somewhere so I can go to the Walmart or to the yeah. Canadian Tire or go grab a meal at the local Tim Hortons. I can do that at home. It's all the same when you go to a chain brand. When you find the unique services, the unique products, those come from the small businesses. And those are what really make up the true fabric and the environment of your local community, your business community. I like how you describe that, the fabric of the community. That's very true. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I'm very happy to be a part of the chamber now. I've been a chamber member for a few years, and I just recently became a board member here with the Sault Ste. Marie Chamber. And I've been on a lot of boards, as I mentioned in the past. And from my short time on being on this board with the Sioux Chamber, it's a very engaging board. The people are very involved. They're very uh, engaging as well with the board. They're there to put in their time. And I'm very impressed with the overall amount of effort that everybody puts in to the board. Because I've been on boards sometimes and I've been there. I've seen people that are on the list and have meetings and I've never seen them, never heard from them for years sometimes. So those boards there aren't so engaging sometimes like that. And unfortunately, you find a lot of, specifically in nonprofit world, you find a lot of boards like that, you know, given these are volunteer positions. So it's different if when you're not getting paid, right? So with this board, again, the chamber, these are all volunteer positions as well. So I'm very impressed with the level of engagement from all the members, from the board of directors, and the work that Rory does as well. Yeah, it seems like it's a higher calling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're attracted to a position or a role in an organization because not because it's going to be a paid position, because clearly they're not, more so because doing that work adds something to your life that is more important than just a paycheck. Right. I definitely felt that energy in the air when I was at the event, and I'm very much looking forward to this Saturday's event, the Business Awards event. I think you guys are doing it at the machine shop. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, probably by the time this episode airs, that event will already be passed, but people hear about it whatever and they might be able to come to subsequent events Mm -hmm. so it's the chamber's biggest event of the year so it's a very big attraction it's a great turnout Uh, i get to see all the movers and shakers in town in the area so it's really great steve we talked a lot about the advice that you give to the young population about learning more about business and entrepreneurship becoming self-employed starting companies but i'm curious to know your thoughts on if an adult is thinking about a career change say you're in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s even and you're like I've been doing this career I've been working at this job for many years now I'm comfortable I'm sort of steady I've got obligations I've got a mortgage I've got a family but there's this burning desire there's this unfulfilled dream that I have where I want to be in control of my own time and my own destiny and I want to be the employer rather than the employee when you have grown adults who are thinking about things like that I imagine the thought process and the planning process and the advice you would give them would be quite different versus someone who is like, 
maybe 18 or 19 years old starting out in their career. So what would you tell that population about their entrepreneurship journey? Well, again, my approach would be almost similar. First step would be to do an evaluation and to have the person do a self-assessment. Do you understand what you're getting involved with, with entrepreneurship? I have faced the situation where fully grown adults in their 30s or so thinking to make a change and wanting to get into entrepreneurship. I was like, okay, what is your biggest reason for wanting to get into your being your own business owner? Oh, I would like to have my evenings off and have the weekends off to spend with my daughter. And I'm like, entrepreneurship might not be the biggest thing for you if that's what you're looking for right now. Because in order to get to that point, you have to give up a lot of time. You're going to be giving up your weekends and your evenings, and you're not going to be able to spend a lot of time with your family in those first few years of building a business. So if that's what your goal is, maybe a career change, but working for somebody else is more in line of where your goals are going to be. Because if your goal right now is to spend time with your kids and be with them during their developmental years or their younger years, starting a business is going to be conflicting. It's going to conflict with your goals, especially if it's something that you're looking to do full-time or to support yourself full-time from, it's going to require 100% of your attention for quite a few years until it becomes rolling on its own. Unless you have some sort of great setup, a lot of support in the background, you're coming from a family of entrepreneurs and you got your family's lawyer there to help you out and all this stuff, maybe that will be a good choice for you. But for most people who don't have access to a lot of those resources or a background or a family support there, and they're trying to make that change as an adult, really need to do a self-assessment first. That would be my first piece of advice. Do you understand what you're getting involved with? And I try and find out what are their goals? What's your main goal after being an entrepreneur? And again, if I hear somebody say it's like, cause I want to have more time to myself, it's like, uh, going to have to reevaluate that and really take a focus look on What does that look like? What type of business are you going to do? Are you trying to do a restaurant type business? You're definitely not going to have a lot of time on your hands. Are you doing an in-home business that you can set up everything online? Well, maybe that's something you can look at that's more feasible for you. But it all depends. All depends. The first thing I always do when an entrepreneur comes to me or for advice or anything like that is, what is your goal from being an entrepreneur? Why do you want to be an entrepreneur? just to make sure they understand and that their goals align. That would be my first piece of advice for sure. Based on what I'm hearing, it sounds like it needs to be a family decision. It's not just the unilateral decision of this one individual who woke up one morning and decided they wanted to try out entrepreneurship. They need to talk about this with the people that are closest to them in their immediate family because this is going to take away time from quality family time. And maybe you structure the business in a way where you're still spending time together, but you're running the business together as a family. If it's a service or a product or whatever that lends itself to that kind of thing. I imagine there are some industries where it doesn't make sense for the whole family to try to be working on the business together or whatever. But Yeah. And is that what your family wants? I mean, right. do you want your younger son working with you in the store? Is that what he wants? I've seen a lot of those family dynamics be tarnished because the pursuit of their entrepreneurial goals gets the family involved when the family would rather not be involved. But oh yeah, that can create a lot of tension as well. It's something, like you said, it needs to be a family decision made together. Me, I'm a single man, never married. So if I want to make those changes, there's very little 
of me to decide. It's just up to me. There's more flexibility. More flexibility for sure. But definitely if you have family members, children, wife, husband, whatnot. Yeah, that's definitely you're going to need to talk it over with them. And it needs to be a family unit decision for sure. Yeah. It's about risk taking and entrepreneurs by their nature are risk seekers. And if not actively seeking risk, at least they have a very, very high risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. If members of your family also are people who have a high risk tolerance, then you're sort of all taking that risk together. That if the business does really well, then you can all enjoy the benefits of that together. But if it fails, then you're all ready to accept the hardships that will come along with that as well as a family. But yeah, I agree. It's like you have that conversation first. You all get on the same page about what it is that you're doing and the risks that you're potentially going to be taking. And if it's like 100% of their own free will, voluntarily, yes, I'm doing this with both eyes open, you jump into it. And that's what it is. But yeah, I would imagine that's something that's more relevant to like the 30s, 40s, 50s demographic versus like the late teens, early 20s demographic. Definitely. You're at different stages of life. So it's easy to tell a young 18, 19 year old, hey, go after your dreams, go after your goals. You got your whole life ahead of you. Yeah. I suppose when someone comes to you and they're say my age and they've been working their whole life for somebody else, they got some savings, maybe, maybe not. And then they want to now go out and risk it all to start a business. That's a different approach. It takes a longer conversation. It's not something I want to just push somebody to go do. I want to make sure they're understanding exactly what they're getting into, the risks involved. It's like, hey, you might spend three or four years and it could fail in the end. Are you ready and prepared in in your life to be able to handle that if that does happen? If you're 41 now, and the business fails at 45, are you willing to rebuild at 45 and try and go at it when you're 48? Or if you fail, are you going to resort just going back into working in the private sector for somebody else? So those are all things that you have to consider depending on where you are in life when it comes to entrepreneurship. Right. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. We're sort of framing it from the perspective of the obstacles that may be there. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, now you've got responsibilities. You've got a family, you've got a mortgage, you've got stuff. But I also find that there may be some, at least theoretically, some advantages that come along with that experience, starting out your entrepreneurial journey a little bit older versus being younger. Why? Because you've had years and years to develop a skill set, perhaps multiple different kinds of skills at multiple different kinds of companies. Depends on how many times you switched jobs throughout your careers. I mean, sometimes people will stay at the same company for a long time and it's become less common now. I think these days people switch around, mm-hmm. but you've learned so much from working in all these different jobs that you could think to yourself, you know what, what if I provided these same services, all the things that I already know how to do, but I provide them as an independent contractor, as a business owner, as a company. And then I teach other people to do the things that I know how to do that I've learned over the years. And when I teach those people, I hire them as my employees. And then our company provides this service to the business community or directly to consumers or what have you. You've spent time honing your craft. Yes, there are disadvantages starting out later in life, but then you can also look at some of the advantages that come along with it as well. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I do recommend for people that are looking at entrepreneurship is the experience they have in that field. I'll go back to the restaurant example. If somebody wants to open up their own restaurant, it's like, okay, have you ever worked in a restaurant before in your life? 
spend time as a server or a cook or in the dish pit or as a host or as a front house manager. If you haven't and you're coming from a completely different market, say, for example, say you're a lawyer. Yeah. You're a lawyer and you want to go open a restaurant. That's quite the jump. Yeah. What you're talking about sounds streamlined. That would be a lot easier to do if you're going to follow the same type of market that you're working in. So if you were a server in a restaurant and you've worked all the positions and you've seen all the good and the bad and you have a great idea for a niche restaurant that nobody else is doing, then yeah, you're going to have a, a much better chance at success pursuing that as an entrepreneur. As opposed to someone that was, say, a lawyer like yourself that yeah. just all of a sudden wants to become a restaurant owner. It's like, whoa. Yeah, you you might want to spend a few years actually working in a restaurant to, or getting that type of experience. So if you're making a complete 180 jump from a market to another, that's always, I have to, you know, caution people with that. And from my background, being a survivor, I'm always on the lookout to what kind of pitfalls can happen, right? But as a risk taker, you sometimes just see the potential. And despite all of the risks and all of the potential fails that might happen, as an entrepreneur, sometimes you just got to go and take that first step. And because you believe in that goal or you see the ability to insert yourself into the market where that service or that product doesn't exist and there is a need for it or a demand for it and you can provide it. Yeah, sometimes you just got to jump in there and go for it. What have you found in your experience is the specific product and service needs that exist in the Sioux community that's unique to this community versus any random entrepreneur starting up in any part of North America? See, the Sioux is unique. It's like a city, but it's in the middle of a bush. We are secluded from other major city centers, so people kind of get used to a certain way of things. I'm saying that from example of looking at the restaurant industry here in town. For the longest time, all we had was a lot of Italian restaurants or basic American-Canadian type steakhouse restaurants. I remember when, it was what, 15 years ago now, 10 years ago, when a first sushi restaurant opened up in town, people were like, that will never happen. They'll never succeed. They'll never uh, make it. It's still open, and it's a great attraction here. Shogun? Shogun. I love going there. Yeah, and it's different. Yeah. So the Sioux can be a little bit behind on the times, but I think that's a big advantage for people who are ahead of the times because they can be a first mover here in the Sioux. They can bring things that people have been already doing for five, 10 years in other major city centers. If you see that trend, it's easier to make it here because unfortunately people that are negative sometimes can get more of the press or more, you hear them more than the people are like, "Mm, you know, I'd really like to have that service or I'd really like to see that here, but they don't say much, right? Yeah. Until the place opens and they go and they talk with their cash. Yeah. They go there and they speak with their wallet instead. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's one thing I noticed about the Sioux. It could be a little bit behind, about maybe five to 10 years behind on trends or other things. Or people are like, "Uh, no, this is the way it's always been here. This is the way it's going to be here. Right. Yeah. Oh, not the way it has to be. So it can be a little restrictive sometimes with the uh, diversity mindsets. Right. Yeah. But it's also very welcoming. Once those are introduced or the doors to something new opens, people realize that this is a really good thing to have in our community. And they will come out and support it with their wallets. I was reading this article in the Sioux Today a few weeks ago about how small business owners, specifically retail storefront owners in the downtown area, are just so up to their ears 
in things like break and enters and thefts, and they're constantly trying to make insurance claims to cover the losses on petty crime that they're being the victims of. And it just seems so discouraging if you're someone who wants to open up a shop, you want to open up a retail storefront, you want to provide goods and services to the community. And you think to yourself, well, if I do that, am I going to be dealing with people breaking into my store all the time? And, you know, it's one thing if they break in in the middle of the night when everything's locked up and no one's there. And I imagine it's even more jarring if it's like a daytime robbery when there's actually staff there. So it's like, these are all concerns I imagine that people have when they're thinking about like, do I want to start a business? Do I want to put myself in that position? Do I want to be holding up a target in front of me? I don't know. I don't know what the solution for something like that would be, but I mean, people floated different ideas about like, maybe the city needs to invest more in private security. I just, I don't really know, but it definitely is something that I think concerns should concern anyway. Any entrepreneur in the Sioux area, I would like to invest more in the local economy for sure. Um, one of my ways of doing that is through this podcast and creating this content. And I have a lot of ideas about other things I'd like to do. And I imagine you do as well, given the line of work you're in. But it's like some of these problems just seem so insurmountable unless you're in a really powerful position of authority. Like if you're in city council or you're really high up in the police or something, maybe you can come up with some solution and actually implement it. But it's like the the small business community, it's sort of like, well, what do we do, right? Like, where is our power? Where's our ability to prevent these things so that we can brace ourselves for that, be prepared for inevitable crime activity like that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the thing with crime and being an actual physical storefront. And I think this is an issue that's come out lately more in the last five years or so, um, become more of a prevalent problem. And I don't see it secluded just to the Sioux. I see this as a more macro level problem. We're going to see a rise in petty thefts, break and enters, that type of thing. And the only thing I can suggest is like now business owners do have to prepare for that in their business plans. And when they're revisiting their business plans and doing their SWOT analysis, like their strengths, weaknesses, threats, opportunities, that is now an outside threat. You can mitigate those risks by having certain security in place, lobbying for better security patrols with city council or with Sioux police and whatnot. That's just something that needs to be built into your analysis now. Um, and that's a risk. And you can't really control that, I don't think. Right. You can mitigate it. You can mitigate the risks as much as you can, but it's not something that's really can control, like interest rates. We don't have any control over the interest rates. We just have to be able to work that into our strategy and our business plan as it changes, right? Right. And unfortunately, breaking enters and petty crime is on the rise. And it's because a lot of people are out of job opportunities and um, you're seeing a lot higher costs like inflation and food costs and rising in that. And it's forcing people to do other nefarious things to make money now. When I was earning my economics degree at Waterloo, I saw this interesting statistical study that basically charted a relationship between minimum wage laws and property crime. And what they found was as minimum wages increased, property crime generally tended to decrease. So there was an inverse relationship there. And then in times of when you see this sort of inflation and wages not keeping up with inflation, 
economists will look at that as sort of like the real value, quote unquote, the real value of money is actually decreasing. So the number, the dollar figure of the wage is not decreasing. That would be silly. But the buying power of those dollars is going down. So what they found was when the real value of those wages were dropping and those amounts of money could buy less and less stuff, what they found was an increase in that case mm-hmm. of property crime, right? So it's almost like good economics, good living wages, uh, providing an avenue for lawful ways to earn a good living seems to be its own crime prevention solution to some extent. Is it going to eliminate the problem entirely? No. There's always going to be some people who are like, you know what, I'd rather just go steal this thing or take this thing because it's easier than working a job. I consider that probably to be a small number of people. There's some that there's this desperation. Maybe some of the desperation comes from addiction issues, which is a whole other separate thing that we talked about that in a previous episode with Megan Lambert, a clinical social worker. And we went really deep into that stuff. But it makes me think, you just hear about it so much in the media and that kind of thing. And you wonder, how do we overcome that? How do we deal with that? It's an unfortunate byproduct of where we're at right now and the macro level of economics and society. Yeah. And it's just something that we have to try and build into our business plans now as entrepreneurs and business owners. And like you said, a lot of this comes back down to those opportunities that are out there. And as business owners, that's what we want to do. We want to provide more opportunities and give back to our communities by providing jobs and opportunities and volunteering our time to give back and raising funds for these charities. So to me, those are some of the better ways that we can help try and fight a lot of this unfortunate petty crime that's afflicting people. So when we want to give away our resources or volunteer our resources and time, I think we need to start focusing on those things that are going to help people establish themselves economically in a viable position where they won't have to resort to petty crime to make ends meet. Right. And make it easier for people to access education. I mean, look how expensive it is for education right now. I came from a lot of unfortunate backgrounds, but I also came from an opportunity to have my post-secondary education paid for. And I knew that, and I kept that card in my back pocket. And I played that card properly. There's a lot of people out there that don't have that option. They don't have the option to go to post-secondary school because the costs seem very insurmountable to them. And I can understand where they're coming from with that. So, And it's only getting more expensive. It's just getting more expensive. So how can we make education more available to everybody? Uh, Because if I didn't have access to that education, I could have easily resorted down and been one of these people that other people are complaining about on their podcasts. I could have been out there on the streets ripping off catalytic converters or breaking into houses just trying to make ends meet because I didn't have a chance to go to school and I thought it was too expensive. But I had the opportunity because I had the card in my back pocket to be able to play. Uh, I know a lot of people don't have that option. And this day and age, even if you do have a high school diploma, that's nothing these days. Everybody has their high school diploma. Saying you have your high school diploma these days is like saying you graduated from grade eight back right. in my day. Right. It's just, you have to have at least a post-secondary college now in order to be considered for many jobs that are out there. It's just a fact. I was reading this article recently, actually, about how Ontario is launching this new program on the topic of increasing access to education. They're launching this new program where people can get their nursing education funded by the government, like paid for it, just like that. And I'm just like, wow, that's such an opportunity for so many people, I imagine, because that 
in my mind, is a well-paid career. People are free to disagree, but my opinion is if you're in almost any profession that's in the medical world, you're probably financially doing better than most people. And now to have a path to that profession where the educational cost barrier is being lifted through these new government programs, like I thought that was just so uh, exciting that that's the direction that things are going. Clearly trying to fill a need, clearly there are not enough people Mm -hmm. working in that line of work right now. Okay, and needs more, obviously. But it's good to see that there's a solutions-oriented program in place. And that, that sort of reminds me when you were telling me about how you were able to receive the benefit of a government-funded program where you can access education and it's paid for. It's fascinating the words you use. It's a card in my back pocket. It's almost like it was like a trick, like an ace up your sleeve. I don't look at it that way. I look at it a little bit differently. You earned everything that you achieved, right? You had to go through the steps of applying yourself and gaining that knowledge and going through that educational process. And yes, one of the burdens and barriers was relieved for you. Yeah. But that's not like offering someone a free paid for education doesn't guarantee that person's success. Far from it. What they need is a certain level of desire and drive to look at that opportunity, Mm -hmm. see it for the opportunity that it is, and then spend years chasing that opportunity, right? A lot of people, they don't do that. But I'm on the same page with you that I do believe education, and I didn't believe this when I was younger. I think I sort of developed this opinion over time. I do believe that education is so transformative for people's lives, uh, regardless of what vocation you pick, but spend time consuming knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mentioned something along these lines earlier in this episode where it's like, you can learn so many more skills and gather so much more knowledge today online for free than you ever could like 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So whether it's traditional education through the university or college system or it's self-taught, um, I really do believe the more you can teach yourself and the more you can learn, the more enriched your life is going to be. Yes, financially, but also in certain other ways as well. It broadens your opinion of the world and your opinion of people and how things work. When I do the cards and I talk about cards, I believe that people get dealt a certain hand in life, yeah, yeah. right? And that's what I refer to when I say, that was a good card, the education uh, paid for a card. Yeah. That was a card in my life that I had and I knew I had, so I saved that for the proper time to play it. But I think education teaches you how to play that game though. Yeah. It helps you to look at your cards that you've been dealt in life and yeah. say, how do I properly apply my cards in life? Yeah. That's what I look at. So if you come from a background like mine, a lot of it, like I didn't have supports. I didn't have anything really. And I had to drive myself to it. From my own education, my own research and learning about money, learning about how all of that market works and business and finance and how it works. The one thing that I've come to realize recently is I think a lot of people like myself who are first generation building their career. Uh, we're very driven because there is no safety nets. There's no trust funds for me set up. There's no inheritances set up for me. Everything I do, I have to build on my own. But what I've learned, people who build generational wealth pass along to their kids. Usually by the third generation of that wealth, that wealth is usually gone and it's usually squandered. Why? Because the second generation, well, they see, oh, my dad worked really hard and I'm going to inherit the business. So there's less drive on that second generation. They know they're going to inherit a business from dad. 
right? And so they, maybe they take it, they build it even bigger. And by the third generation, there's no motivation now for them to go out and build anything because they know that grandpa and dad have already built this empire that they're just going to inherit. So where's their drive to actually go and build something for themselves? They got all the safety nets. They got the trust funds. They got the inheritance. What point is there working hard for? Right. This is what I tell people. If like you want your kids to work hard, tell them they're not getting a dime when you die. <laughs> not a dime. Tell them you're donating all your money to the Humane Society yeah. when you die. See how hard they start working. Yep. I think there's some <laughs> wisdom to that for sure. It makes me think about how considerable percentage of lottery winners mm. end up spending all of their winnings in just a few years yeah. and then they're broke again. Like you hear about stories like that all the time. You just read Google a story it. yesterday about a guy who won $50 million. I think it was, no, it was 480 some million dollars yeah. at the age of 50. And in 15 years or less, he blew it all. That's just before he died. He was spending like, I think they said $119,000 a day or and stuff. Yeah. And like with that kind of money, you have the opportunity to build intergenerational wealth that could last just God knows how many Mm -hmm. generations of lineage. That wealth could still be there or have grown enormously by the time your great, 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 great grandchildren inherit that. Mm. But there, there needs to be, you know, and again, people do what they want. Like, let's say if, if perhaps that person who won that lottery considered that, and they thought to themselves, well, you know what? I would rather just enjoy my life. I'm not really concerned about like creating intergenerational wealth as long as it's within the confines of my lifetime and I enjoy this money. End of story. So it's a personal choice. Me, I mean, if I woke up one morning and I had a winning lottery ticket for that kind of money, I'd be thinking about a time frame that's just way, way beyond my own lifetime. I'd be thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, how do I set up some sort of financial arrangement, financial infrastructure of real estate and businesses and investment funds and stuff that can carry into the future for decades and decades after I'm gone. Mm. That's where my mind would go. Obviously, you enjoy it while you're alive. You take your vacations, you do all that stuff. And it's the same thing. I mean, forget lottery winners for a second. It's the same thing if you are lucky enough that your entrepreneurial journey, well, luck and hard work, Mm. if your entrepreneurial journey results in a really, really successful business, you really got to think about a time frame that's longer than your life. Yeah. What I've found, whether it comes to lottery winnings or, you know, business dealings or securing a lot of money through your business, it all depends on the person you are, ultimately. I mean, all money is going to do for you. It's not going to change who you are. It's going to amplify what your you personality of what you already are. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you're a super nice guy that's super generous and then you came along a windfall of money, whether through a great business deal or a lottery winning, whatever, that's just going to make you be even more generous and more out there and giving guy. If you're a big jerk, it's just going to allow you to be an even bigger jerk now. (laughs) That's all it's going to do. If you're an alcoholic, you're now going to be a bigger alcoholic. You're going to buy more alcohol. You're going to buy more alcohol. If you like to drink tea, you're going to buy all the tea in the world. That's all money does. It's it's not going to change you. A lot of people think, oh, if I I just won some money or if I got some money, my life would be better. Right. No, it probably won't. Um, It all comes down to changing who you are if you want your life to be better. It's just going to be a more extreme version. It's just going to be a more extreme version of what you have now. (laughs) It's all it's going to do. That's really wise. (laughs) Mm, mm, That's why I say, like, 
money's not going to change your life. It's just going to amplify who you are in your life now. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you're in the population and it is uh, sadly in this country, a growing population of people, if you're in the population of people who are um, just living on the edge of financial doom, then yeah, a huge injection of cash will solve your immediate problems like Mm -hmm. putting food on the table, getting shelter over your head, being able to wear warm clothing in the winter. But on the other hand, if you are, let's say, living a more comfortable life than that, like your sort of average middle-class family, 100% agree. Like you can give your average middle-class family a a whole bunch of millions and millions of dollars, but like to what extent is it going to change you as a person? Like it's it's just going to amplify your pre-existing habits. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got you. And I've heard that. I've actually heard that before. mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. That's what it's been like for me. So I've known how money works, but I've never been in a position to lately to actually use that knowledge because I've always been in poverty. Right. I've always been struggling to get by or I've had to use my credit cards to pay my bills. Right. Just recently, I've been in the position now to get into the black and have savings and being able to move and make adjustments and look at my actual wealth. But it's because I built that knowledge before I even had the wealth. Right. So now that I'm in a position to use that knowledge... I'm going to build more wealth for myself. Yeah. But, it, uh, it sounds like from what you said earlier in the podcast that you were smart enough to put that into real estate investing. Right. Instead of just like sort of blasting your cash on parties and whatever. Right? Or even like, rent. Like yeah. I had to rent. I watched my mom and my stepdad having to rent through social assistance. And I paid rent as a teenager when I had to move out all the way through into my 30s. And that was the biggest painfulest thing to have to do every 30 days to bring that big chunk of cash down to my landlord or whoever it was and just to know that only bought me another 30 days to live i knew in my mind i was like if i owned a house this would be going to build wealth every time but it's not because i wasn't in a position or i didn't know how to buy a house then i didn't have the supports or systems or know how to do it then but i did know that this isn't getting me anywhere. The paying rent isn't getting me anywhere wealth-wise. It's just right. getting me another 30 days to live. Well, yeah, I never liked that. And like, I guess you're essentially sort of paying someone else's mortgage. Yeah. Right? Like, and I, I hear that criticism a lot about the, just the entire concept of landlords and tenants even existing in this economic system. Like, mm-hmm. the system itself. And don't itself, get me wrong. Like, there's benefits to both. I've seen people that are on fixed incomes and they don't have the ability to take care of a house and the yard and everything and they might be older. And so, yeah, paying rent makes more sense to them. It's set up and that makes sense. Right. Uh, but if you're younger, just starting out and you want to build wealth, paying rent sometimes isn't the best option. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's a little bit like risk transference. Like, as a tenant, if something goes wrong with the property, you don't bear the financial consequences of that. You have to call the landlord and be like, look, something's mm-hmm. not working. You need to fix it. Yeah. And if it's going to cost money to fix, well, that's the landlord's problem. Exactly. So the risk of something breaking down, the risk of these costs coming up, you've offloaded that risk to the landlord and you pay a fixed predictable fee every single month to live there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can see why there's benefits and disadvantages to the tenant and there's benefits and disadvantages to the landlord in that relationship definitely you yeah. definitely got to do the cost benefit analysis of where you're at to like is it renting or is owning better for me like yeah definitely do that cost benefit analysis for sure yeah fair enough well you know steven it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show mm-hmm. uh, i love talking about business and entrepreneurship and investing and also helping out fellow 
colleagues in the business community, like we were talking about the Chamber of Commerce events, and also inspiring the younger generation to pursue entrepreneurship as well. This is stuff I'm really personally passionate about. I try to have a variety of people on the show that have a lot of different types of themes and stuff to talk about, but I'm personally quite partial to discussing money and business and stuff. It's always just Mm -hmm. been like a fun sort of area of interest for me. So thank you for that. You look like you're about to say something. No, I enjoy talking about it too. It's taboo for a lot of people to talk about money and their situations sometimes, right? But I think it's a conversation we all need to have more, especially for me coming from an Indigenous person, our Indigenous people, we've lived in an environment of how do we survive? And we've come this far. We've been in survival mode for so long. And now we're starting to get into positions where people have money and they have wealth. And we're switching gears now from this survive mindset to a thrive mindset. Yeah. So being able to do these kind of podcasts and just show people like, hey, there's a wealthy niche person out there that knows what they're talking about. And there's plenty of us out there. Yeah. uh, There's more than just me. And that's what I like to do and showcase that and to show our people that, no, we're not all poor living on the res and we're not all living in a trauma ridden like you see in the media news cycle we're not all protesting business a lot of us support business in our own ways yeah and that's the great thing i noticed when i was in business school there was a very big disdain towards business from our people and the more i talked with the business owners indigenous business owners about that attitude uh the girl i just talked with jen harper she's the owner of cheekbone beauty and she was mentioning like well look how bad business is based on it's a basically a throwaway type system where you make a product it's consumed once it's done it's thrown away and you build a new product and a lot of how the business is set up goes against how we as indigenous people have learned to live in harmony with each other and our environment so now that we're being re-engaging into the economic market we're bringing our values to the table and we're inserting those now and actually starting to change the way things and people look at business. Back in the day, business and talking about closed loop cycles and recycling, reusing and reducing was a niche topic before. Uh, now it's a big thing. Everyone's talking about it. And I see a lot of our indigenous people that are leading the way that sustainability and how do we be a better steward with Mother Earth I see that coming into all their businesses that I haven't seen before in a way. For example, another girl I know, Hiawatha, she owns Hiawatha Catering out of Sudbury. She was one of the first caterers that I've ever seen that was using biodegradable cutlery. So like forks, spoons, and plates that were made out of like, I think bamboo type material that biodegraded really easily in landfills as opposed to plastic. Sure, it cost her a little bit more, but she didn't care because it meant that much to her. That's what I'm talking about when I see more of our Indigenous people getting involved in business and bringing those cultural values into play. Sure, it might cost them a bit more. It's worth it to us to do it, right? So it's great to see, and I like to see us re-engaged with the market. We've always been good business people. We've just been excluded from the market for so long. Right. But you now, actually answered a question that I had been meaning to ask that had actually slipped my mind, but I'll say the question anyway. In what ways do you find your values and your roots help enrich your journey as a 
business owner and as a consultant and as an advisor and as a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. You did an amazing job of putting that into context, right? You're quite right. The idea of sustainable products and producing physical, tangible goods that do not end up destroying our oceans and that kind of thing. This is something that's become so much more important to consumers over the last decade or so. And these are very deeply rooted, ancient values from your cultural tradition. This is not new, mm-hmm. but it's only recently that the sort of like mass market business community has started to put importance on things like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And you're seeing more of that being prevalent with when it comes to environments, getting actual rights, like human rights. So like the Great Lakes, just a couple of years ago through the initiatives of some Anishinaabe people, I think specifically some Anishinaabe women here locally, I can't remember their names, but they're spearheaded getting Lake Superior and the Great Lakes actual rights in courts where they can be defended and be called as a plaintiff in court. And you see more of that around the world in, say, Colombia and Peru, where they have large indigenous population, and they've recently given rights to, say, the Amazon forest right, and things like that, or the rivers locally. So how is that going to change now? Because that's going to change the whole fabric of business and how business is done. Because before, it was corporations. Corporations used to have rights. But now... If the actual resources these corporations were using and abusing now have rights as well, how is that going to play out in courts? Because, like, yeah, they have the rights now, but I haven't seen many court cases where these rights have been actually exercised. Right. And that's what you're going to start seeing a lot more happening coming very soon. And I think a lot of our indigenous organizations and people and entrepreneurs and leaders will be leading that charge. Yeah. I find that so fascinating from a legal theory perspective because a person, comes across an article online and maybe they're not really that well-versed in legal concepts and stuff. And they see something that says, oh, we're trying to give personal rights to a lake or Mm -hmm. a river. And the first place your mind goes is like, well, how can like a physical object have like rights that are the same as a person? My rebuttal to that, my answer to that is, well, we have, like you said, we have corporations. Right. Corporations are just fictional abstract concepts that we've created. On paper. On paper. So basically these little pieces of paper that represent a corporation have the same rights as a person under our legal system. And exactly. that has been the case for many, many decades. So if you're okay with the idea of giving rights to a corporation, which is just a piece of paper, wouldn't you then logically also be okay with potentially considering giving rights to something much more important than a piece of paper, like, I don't know, a rainforest or a lake or a river. So I, I had to think about these things mm-hmm. from like a sort of legal theory perspective. I'm like, that actually does make a lot of sense. You can't believe in giving legal rights to a corporation and then not also entertain other ways of thinking that follow that line of reasoning down that path. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very fascinating from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting legal landscape moving forward. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Because I've been following it and I see that, okay, yeah, sure, the Great Lakes has rights now. I see parts of the Amazon forest have rights. Uh, what's that going to look like in a court case when that actually gets played out? Now, when somebody says, hey, I want to bring a case, Great Lakes versus Nestle. Yeah. What would that look like? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how is that going to play out? Yeah, I can tell you how it plays out with corporations. Someone has the responsibility of looking after the best interests of the corporation. 
And usually the people that have that responsibility are the directors, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't know. And again, I'm just spitballing ideas because I haven't gone out and done the research on this, but like maybe you appoint one or more persons to be the quote unquote directors who are entrusted with the responsibility of advancing the best interests of this, in this case, natural body, which has been given rights, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the same way that you entrust a board of directors to look out for the best interests of the corporation. Like a committee. Like a committee, right? It sounds so simple, but like most things in the law, it never stays simple once you start digging deep. You read the Business Corporations Act, and we'll go too far into this, but like Business Corporations Act in Ontario, it's got this long, long list of all the things that a director has the right to do, and they also have the obligation to do. Like you have to really observe your duties, your legal duties, when you are a director of a corporation. Similarly, maybe you're part of this committee that has been entrusted to look after this land to the same sort of structured, complex standard that you would expect from like the Business Corporations Act of Ontario. You would expect it in the same fashion, hopefully, as we evolve in these things and our concepts of giving rights to land as their own unique separate entities. We evolve our laws in the same way. I don't know. Again, at some level, it's a policy discussion. And on some level, it's almost a philosophical discussion. But Law and philosophy are just so intertwined with each other. So it's like, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be an interesting play out for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steven, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I'm sure at some point we'd love to have you back and we can expand on some of this stuff more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine you've got some exciting projects that you have on the go in your business and entrepreneurship journey. I do as well. So maybe we reconvene several months from now or a year from now and we compare notes on where we're at and uh, it'd be really cool to have another episode well i look forward to it and thank you very much for having me it's been great thanks for joining us for another episode of the sue podcast follow us on spotify facebook youtube and tiktok and be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com that's s-o-o podcast.com